Hello, welcome to another episode of Scuttlebutt. I'm Nick. I'm here with Vic. Hello. William. Howdy. And we've got Nancy in-house today. Hi, uh, everybody. Yeah, right. this really is a full house. Last week we thought it was a full house. Now it's a full house. We're a packed house today, yeah, that's yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah. It's a party. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> oh, happy to be here. All right, so Nancy is here today because she was part of the interview with uh, Chaplain Captain Rabbi Mindy Stern. Not just a part. She was instrumental in yeah, getting this Yeah, she brought him in. Just a little peek behind the curtain on this one. We wanted to have uh, the rabbi in-house yeah. at the last second. We had to reschedule and uh, did things over uh, teams. So that's why there's some parts in the thing might sound like a little wonky. But it was an adventure getting them on. Nancy yeah. was part of it. Yes. Yeah. Nancy yes. is here now. Yeah, and just for anybody listening from a uh, U.S. Army.mil account, you're going to have an issue <laughs> linking up with teams outside of a U.S. Army.mil on the other end. Blame <laughs> the Army. Always. <laughs> so much for <laughs> Army Strong. For sure. Yeah, yeah. Army Strong, not. Not their network. Or maybe their network security is strong because the team. Internally, it's probably yeah. really strong. Actually, yeah. it's probably, probably it's too strong. Like. <laughs> yeah, they are. <laughs> anyway, well, you guys talked to Mindy for about an hour and 15 minutes. So let's uh, get right into what we were excited about in the interview. So. Uh, Nancy, you were there. You're here now. I want to get your voice. Um, oh, her face. She did not yeah. know she's leading off. Yeah, I didn't, you didn't, you didn't tell me I was going to be the leadoff hitter. Well, first of all, good news for Chaplain Captain Rabbi Mendy Stern. He is He's being promoted no to longer major. Chaplain yeah. Captain. He is now. So that's Chaplain exciting major. news for yeah. him. Mm. And uh, I, I guess the reason, well, I know the reason, I was a big part of putting the interview together is because he is my rabbi and uh, an amazing rabbi, amazing speaker, a great spiritual leader. And so I was really happy that he was willing to come on the podcast and talk to talk to us and then uh, talk to all of you. And this sort of fell into our laps. I mean, we originally had someone else lined up and it was basically going to be for Christians, right? which uh, is great. I mean, we wanted to talk chaplaincy, but we're talking for chaplains, and we're also one of the reoccurring themes. This has been religious pluralism. To have a rabbi, I mean, it was like super, and especially a superstar like Chaplain Major Stern. Stern. Yeah, and um, also someone who is like very knowledgeable on the four chaplains and knew like, yeah. a lot of the intimate yeah. details yeah. about it. Was really cool. Yeah. Well, and that's where I first heard this. Yeah. The story of the four chaplains was not from. Not from Rabbi Stern, but from a previous rabbi at the congregation at uh, Fort Belvoir Army Base. Um, heard that story maybe 15 years ago at a you know a Friday night service, yeah. and I, I just I was awestruck and inspired, and so I'm really happy that a lot more people are going to be able to hear yeah. that story. And thank you so much because I mean you did basically all the legwork to make this happen. So. Uh, and it was sort of a last-minute deal, so this is really great. This is a, a, a real treat, and hopefully our listeners enjoy yeah. it as much as we And did you know that he was such a trailblazer when uh, he was just your rabbi? I did. You did? I did know that. We had okay. to. Just look at him, right? I did. Well, <laughs> He's got a little something extra. When when we heard who our new rabbi was going to be, I immediately went to the Google and looked mm. him up and you know to yeah. find everything out I could about him. And Yeah, you'll um, hear in the interview, but it's more than just his moxie yeah. that stands <laughs> out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Anyway, uh, what stood out to you, William? What did what did you like? Well, about I Mindy? I like the entire interview. I think he, I I've touched on it. Like, I love how he's all like very like knowledgeable on the four chaplains. But I th- I think for Scuttlebutt history, it's our first cliffhanger. Like he says, he dropped a very interesting potential story and says he might come back. So I think, you know, if any of our Scuttlebutt listeners want more of our of our dear Rabbi Stern, please uh, email us, message us. I mean, obviously he's an interesting dude. We're gonna try and get him back anyways, but. You know, your support is always welcome. You're not supposed to tell people the cliffhanger is coming, William. Well, he didn't tell what the cliffhanger is. He's just he's piqued their interest now to listen to the whole episode. Well done. I like it. I thought that was a good carrot dangling. That's not that's not how it works, guys. It's like a it's like a teaser on the front of a magazine, right? A lot. A teaser at the front of the magazine. The story is not concluded. Yeah, it's like when you're watching a trailer and then everyone's eyes get big and they gasp and then it's like. Oh, you know which what huh. th- what that is? It's the grade with Liam Neeson, where in the trailer they showed the post credit scene of him fighting the wolf. I didn't see that. Oh. Liam entire- Neeson <laughs> against the wolf. The I'm entire- in. Like, I know, yeah. everybody was in. It's not in the movie, guys. It's like <laughs> Wow. Bummer. Well anyway, this one will be this is the that. movie's like twelve years old now, so it's okay to spoil it a little bit. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Liam Neeson's in one of my favorite movies of all time, Crawl. You guys remember Crawl? I did not see no. that. Oh man, no. yeah. He's, anyways, check out Crawl too if you're if you're into Liam Neeson. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Well, I appreciated the look we got at the life of someone working at the Arlington National Cemetery. Yeah, that was a little eye opening, and it, it really, you know, I, I'm trying to think of how to phrase this. Like, it's just you don't think about it when, from the outside looking in that inside out he is. Uh, burying silver star winners he is burying people who might have done something beyond the military like it's it was pretty awesome to hear about that Vic what do you think yeah absolutely and I I really what resonated with me and I hope resonates with all our listeners is his um his call to action um you know he was in Manhattan during 9-11 I mean he I think he says he saw the buildings being hit and he just knew that he had to go do something. And it wasn't like him stepping outside of himself like, oh, I'm going to grab a rifle and fall in line. He did within – and, you know, regardless of your faith group or, or your belief system, whether it's, you know, Yahweh or Jesus or Buddha or, you know, um, Allah or whatever or, or the universe, whatever it is that's calling you to do good, he – you, it doesn't mean you have to step outside of yourself to do that. There are many, 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 many ways that you can contribute to the goodness. And you know what resonates with Marines. You know, you you run to the run to the sound of chaos, and you don't have to just sit idly by and wish and wonder how can I contribute. You can just get into it. You know, for the USAID folks or State Department folks, for people working nonprofits, working with immigrants, with displaced persons. You know, there's a lot of suffering when these sorts of things happen. And so I think, you know, Rabbi Major Stern is really epitomized that, like he stayed within his lane, but yet it's doing still, like to this day, like so much good. Agree. Agree with that. All right. And this was episode four of uh, the Chaplain series, or the fourth interview. Yeah. I'm not counting any mini pods or anything happening on the sides. Uh, So... Good closer. Good closer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and I think that uh, Rab- uh, Rabbi Stern just put himself right on the top of our "We want him back" list. Yeah, he's gonna have so. to. Maybe we get um, him 
and uh, Colonel Tim Howell, like in the ring, some bare knuckle kumite to see who's going <laughs> to be <laughs> the champ of recurring guests. Yeah. So, well, Robbie Stern has to get back on at least one more time to even be in the competition. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, so uh, you guys learn much during the chaplain's thing. Uh, learn much doing the chaplain episodes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I I feel like maybe there's a call to action for me somewhere down the road. So. This is really resonating on a personal level. All right. Yeah, talking to four pretty amazing chaplains mm-hmm. back to back to back to back like that, I could imagine would. It's hard not yeah. to feel yeah. something else beyond yourself here. And just in studying military history, there's also, like, you know, like a like a lot of common myths and motifs about what chaplains in their place in it. So it's definitely uh, great to hear, A, from, like, their perspective and B, like, like in, in, like, a more recent context. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. I, I, thought, I thought it was really inspiring and interesting that they have such different backgrounds but um, all played such a vital role in our military and and like you said uh, Vic with serving yeah. yeah and they're all in different like positions around chaplaincy right now with like Mendy still actively doing it um, uh, Bill Kemmer doing the four chaplains foundation um and just chaplain like all all, all yeah. over the place like never given up the call yeah, yeah, yeah. like so. I mean, you think like rear admiral baker for example he's I mean, 16th chaplain of the marine corps you think that guy's kicking his feet up now and chilling nope nope he's in the biz man like he's getting into it he's still you know in that whole he's going out to the mm-hmm. wheel he's not f- people coming yeah. to, and to like, the hub sort of thing so yeah, and, like, Chaplain Driscoll's still working to improve himself. Yeah, he's still a hospital chaplain yeah, now. Like, like, he's, they're called, they're, 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 like, really focusing on well-being and wellness and stuff. So it's it's pretty exciting. It's definitely humbling. And yeah. I am excited that we did this. That being said, four interviews in a month, Vic. You got it in you to do it again anytime soon? For show. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, we're going to slow down on that. Uh, <laughs> All right. Well, without any further ado, here is past Vic and Nancy talking to Chaplain, then Captain, Rabbi Stern. Bye. Bye. See ya. The SS Dorchester, a civilian liner converted for military service, left New York on January 23, 1943, en route to Greenland, carrying approximately 900 personnel and crew. It was part of a convoy of three ships escorted by Coast Guard cutters Tampa, Escanaba and Comanche. During the early morning hours of February 3rd, off Newfoundland in the North Atlantic, the vessel was torpedoed by the German submarine U-223. Chaplains George Fox, Alexander Good, Clark Poling, and John Washington helped the men board lifeboats and gave up their own life jackets when the supply ran out. The chaplains joined arms, said prayers, and sang hymns as they went down with the ship. Okay, well, welcome everyone um, to this, an interview that I've been looking forward to for quite some time um, as we are now wrapping up our Four Chaplains series, and we've been exploring the myriad of aspects of chaplaincy and the Military Chaplain Corps. Um, We are just so honored uh, today to be here with Chaplain, Captain, Rabbi Mendy Stern. Sir, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for having me, and uh, I truly appreciate the opportunity to uh, 
meet with you and to talk uh, about the four chaplains and their impact and inspiration to, to me and to generations of chaplains that came after them. Oh, that absolutely. And, and, and I'm so happy to hear that, that they, uh, that their service and sacrifice was a, um, an inspiration for you. Um, just for those who are just now joining the series, um, you know, the four chaplains, the, the immortal chaplains, the immaculate chaplains, um, were the four chaplains, um, who were making transit with, uh, soldiers heading into the, um, into Europe during World War II on the USAT Dorchester. It was attacked by a submarine, uh, started to sink, and the four chaplains um, in getting people off of the boat were um, actually gave up their own life jackets um, so that everybody could make it off, and then uh, were together as it sank. And those four chaplains were a Catholic chaplain, Protestant chaplain, or two Protestant chaplains, and a... Um, a rabbi, and rabbi's name was Alexander David Good, and so that's why this is such such a treat for us to have another active duty rabbi chaplain who's serving currently in uniform. Sir, if you wouldn't mind, just if you could give us, you could be as brief or be as long winded as you want, but if you could tell us a little bit about your background and where you currently are, and you know, just sort of how you came into. Uh, being a military chaplain. So, interestingly enough, uh, as you mentioned, the four chaplains, I, I do want to take a quick moment. Please. And add, add some details that uh, my research brought out, and I found it uh, actually quite uh, amazing. And uh, so, on January 23rd, 1943, the Dorchester left New York Harbor, and uh, it was on the way to Europe to support the Allies during World War II. One of the things specifically that people need to understand is how many people fit on those boats. There were over 900 people on the ship. And, and it was a converted uh, cruise liner, correct? Cruise liner, that's correct. It was a converted cruise liner, and it was manned by merchant marines and, and Navy sailors. So it was like a, a mixture of personnel and uh, that, ran, you know, that operated it. And in February 1943, the convoy Sierra Golf 19 uh, left Newfoundland, bound for the Army command base in southern Greenland. Now, there were six ships in that convoy, the Dorchester, uh, two other merchant uh, ships and their escorts, and the and, uh, Coast Guard cutters, Comanche, Escabana, and Ta Tampa. What's interesting about it is that as they were traveling, the... Coast Guard cutters detected a submarine and they knew that they're in dangerous waters because of the German U-boats and the history that they had, they knew in, the intelligence told them that, that, you know, it's dangerous. And uh, with the Dorchester only 150 miles from its destination, the captain ordered the men to sleep in their clothing and live vests. Yep. Yep. However, as we know, young soldiers do what young soldiers do. And many soldiers <laughs> slept in shit in the ship without, uh, you know, either without the clothing or without life vests and so on. So uh, specifically, at, right after midnight, about 12.55 or so, in the darkness of night, the, Dor the Dorchester was torpedoed by a German U-boat. And that German U-boat identity actually is known. It's a Uniform 223. And it was a direct hit on the starboard side 
below the waterline. And the damage was so severe that the ship lost power and there was an inadequate steam to even uh, sound the whistle on the, on the ship, you know, to, to notify people yeah. to abandon the ship. So the hit also knocked out power and prevented the crew from sending a radio uh, distress signal. And no rockets or flares were launched to alert the, the escorts. However, wow. what's interesting is that the Coast Guard cutters, the Comanche, saw the flash of the explosion and responded to rescue 97 survivors. And the Escabana, the other Coast Guard cutter, rescued 133 survivors, while the third one, the, T the Tampa, carried on to escort the other ships that were in the convoy. The, uh, so just to, to kind of imagine what's going on in, on the Dorchester, 902 uh, men on board, um, 230 of them were saved. That's all. And as far as I understand it, because of everyone, because of the, ch the sacrifice of the four chaplains, what they say, you know, medically, many of those guys, because of the cold water, would have died were it not for the inspiration of the four chaplains that gave them hope that they could make it. Is that, that's how you understand it as well? Actually, I, I, I heard from a witness that survived, from a survivor. When I was stationed in New York, we, I, got, I had the opportunity to hear from a survivor. Wow. And, and he actually said, and I'm quoting this, I could hear men crying, pleading, and praying. I could also hear the chaplains preaching courage. Their voices were the only thing that kept me going. And then, and then another sailor, this I read in a book, uh, that another sailor tried to re-enter his cabin, but Rabbi Good stopped him. And uh, when the sailor said he wants to get his gloves, the Rabbi Good told him, never mind. And he gave the sailor his own gloves just to get off the Dorchester quickly. But this time the Dorchester was already taking on water and um, and the four chaplains were right there by the storage lockers of the life vests. And they were giving out life vests. And at one point when they ran out, they took off their own life vests and gave it to the soldiers and sailors that were on the ship. Now, you asked me a question before, how, you know, what's my inspiration from this story? So the heroic actions of the four chaplains, in my opinion, they constitute one of the purest spiritual and ethical acts that a person could make. The chaplains exemplify the very creed that they pledge to protect. I will never quit. I will never leave a fallen comrade. And when they gave their life this, Chaplain Good did not search for a Jew. Chaplain Washington did not seek a Catholic, nor did Chaplains Fox and Poling call out for a Protestant. They simply gave their life jackets to the next man in line. And as the ship went down, survivors in the rafts could see the four chaplains arms linked and braced against the slanting deck, their voices in prayer. That night, Reverend Fox, Rabbi Good, Reverend Poling, and Father Washington passed the ultimate test. In doing so, they became an enduring example of extraordinary faith, courage, and selflessness. This is my inspiration. So when we talk about the four chaplains, this is what, you know, the, the serves to me as a, uh, as an inspiration and a driving force, what is my purpose in life? Why did I join the army? So to answer that question, <laughs> I know it's a little long-winded. Um, a little bit about me is uh, I was born in Israel, and my father, who is still serves as a rabbi now in New York, but uh, my family has been rabbis for many generations. 
and I wanted to continue the link to the next generation. In my early teens, my family moved from Israel to America. And while in rabbinical college in New Jersey, uh, 9-11 happened. And I recall standing on the roof of the, of the college and watching. I actually saw the towers fall. And that fed the flame of wanting to serve, you know, the patriotic flame of wanting to serve our country. And uh, since then, it's been burning stronger than ever. Well, that that is uh, that is amazing story. And how old were you then uh, when you were at rabbinical school? How old was I? Twenty. Uh, okay. And then, but it, it, you didn't raise your right hand until you were twenty-nine, correct? That's correct. Uh, so I actually started with uh, service to the community by uh, serving as a volunteer uh, medic on, a, on an ambulance and while working in a rabbinical school, uh, teaching the next generation as well. And, um, and with the downturn of the economy, the school had to shut down. And um, this is in 2007, eight and so on is when uh, I applied to the I, so first of all, I, wor I worked in, in New York City in finance, and I couldn't volunteer during that time because of the uh, long hours, and I was actually quite, quite worked up about it. While I made decent money, I was, I was not satisfied with it, and I wanted to serve and help people. So when I heard that the Army was recruiting rabbis, I jumped on the opportunity, and as they say, the rest is history. Yeah, that's really amazing. So, I mean, you've really felt the call for quite some time. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, I was inspired by uh, one of my teachers and mentors, uh, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Schneerson, who uh, in his teachings encouraged his disciples to become ordained rabbis and to go out in the world and serve communities at large, uh, not to remain insular in, uh, in the comfort of the major Jewish communities, but rather to go out and be... Uh, uh, essentially, uh, uh, lamplighters. Yeah, and, and and so that's a really interesting. Um, uh, and I apologize if any of my uh, questions or comments come off as overly ignorant. Um, but the one of the reoccurring themes we've had in this series is this sort of sense of calling, a sense of service juxtaposed, at least from the Christian standpoint, of pastoral leadership. And, you know, we had um, Rear Admiral uh, Alan Baker on the show, and, and he wrote the book uh, Foundations of Chaplaincy. And in there, he uses the uh, metaphor of the, the hub and wheel. And for Christian ministerial leadership, there is the what we all understand is sort of the everybody on the wheel comes in through the spokes to the hub, which is, you know, the church or the parish. Um, but the chaplaincy completely breaks that paradigm and it's now going out. So you the hub is now this is now the wheel and, and the, the chaplains are are called to then go out. Um, is that the same um, within the uh, within the Jewish faith? Is there a is there a uh, is there a dichotomy there a push pull 
or is there a lot more of a sense of going out to uh, shepherd rather than having the sheep come to the come to the barn sort of thing? So to answer that, uh, we have to understand a little bit of how Judy's, some Jewish theology for a moment. Yeah. Uh, sure. So Jewish theology is actually um, that the, we are going out to be available to serve as essentially as a lighthouse where if a, someone is seeking, they could connect to us. So for instance, if a Jewish soldiers out there and they want to connect to, to Judaism, we are there to, con to help them connect with that. We do not go out to seek or to convert anyone to Judaism. Um, with a, in the same sense, we also have to understand that uh, Judaism as a whole, and this is a, uh, I heard recently a rabbi speak about it uh, uh, on a series, and on a podcast, and it was fa fascinating. He used an interesting story, and he says uh, that he met he met a priest, and the priest asked him, uh, "Isn't it so sad that Jews are being persecuted so much?" And uh, he, the rabbi looked at him and says, "We are here." And he said, "The priest goes, what do you mean?'" And he said, "Well, uh, it's inevitable that the longest." Uh, lasting religion, you know, the religion that has been around for 4,000 years, inevitably he's going to be persecuted the most because others come and go. We don't see the Greeks right now. We don't, you know, we don't hear of, you know, so many other uh, um, uh, people that were, you know, uh, and there were significant nations back in the day, you know, we don't hear of them as major uh, powerhouses. Yet here we are. So were we persecuted? Yeah, but we were also the longest uh, um, lasting uh, religion and nation. So that said, we have to also understand and, uh, and, and see it from the perspective of, uh, you spoke about the hub and spoke of the wheel. Um, Judaism is a direct connection with God. A person, while there is a community to help the person grow and in their connection with God and so on, they do not need it. They have a direct connection, the same way that a child has with a father. The, the connections, even if they're not home, they're still connected. Mm. Being home gives them the comfort, gives them the connection, but they do not need to be home in order to be a, still a, a child of the father. So a Jew, uh, while it's encouraged that they connect through a community and so on, they do not necessarily need it. They could have a direct connection with God. Interesting perspective. That's really beautifully put, Rabbi. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Um, and so to that sense then, so as one of only 13 active duty Jewish chaplains in the army, um, there has to be a sense in one hand of uh, just this, this wonderful accomplishment, but you've got to be a really busy guy. Um, can you sort of walk us through sort of a day in the life of Rabbi Stern? Um, so let me start with, uh, with, a, a, a little bit of, a, an understanding that, uh, every tour of duty is unique for me in its own right. So, uh, you know, while I could share with you a lot of stories and, you know, different experiences at the moment, I'm humbled to serve as a Jew, as a Jewish chaplain at Arlington National Cemetery and the military district of Washington. And, uh, 
as I was told by the historian, I did not verify it myself, but uh, I'm the first active duty army rabbi to be assigned to Arlington. Um, so to get to be in the presence of heroes and to honor them in their final moments here on earth is a humbling experience. So from that perspective, um, on a typical day, I start around uh, five in the morning and uh, I do PT, physical training. And after sunrise, I pray the morning prayers, get ready for work. And uh, in my current assignment, I arrive at work between seven and eight in the morning to prepare for the day. Everything from the daily schedule to operations, logistics, anything related to the Army chaplain's office, uh, operations-wise, uh, I prepare in the morning and I get started. Uh, my NCO arrives at around the same time, and uh, the the NCO's job, the, my non-commissioned officer's job, is to inspect the Arlington ladies' escorts, uh, funeral, uh, the the uniforms. And to ensure that uh, funeral services occur as planned, the vehicles leave on time, you know, everyone is where they need to be at the right place, right time, right uniform, and so on. And then from uh, 9 till uh, around 1500, we conduct funeral services. And the entire team, the Army team, uh, will perform up to, uh, correction, let me rephrase that, the military team, because it's including the Air Force and Navy. So uh, we conduct up to 30 services per day at a rate of approximately five services per hour. And mm. sometimes we have to go from one service to the next and it's essential. We have to keep this in mind all along that we make every family feel individually respected and appreciated. And although there may, there may be many funeral services happening at the same time, it's essential to make every family feel valued and um, uh, they have our undivided uh, focus. Yeah. So in between services, we still have uh, staff, uh, you know, staff officer duties, uh, so command briefings, counseling, coordination of religious services, preparation of religious education and activities, uh, you know, all of these uh, other uh, responsibilities that fall on us. Now, most most days, I try to, to leave the office in time for dinner. And realistically, though, uh, you know, I conduct Hebrew school on Wednesdays and attend meetings at caused me to leave the office late. So uh, let's not forget that also in middle in middle of all of this, I also serve as one of the subject matter experts on religious accommodation requests. And I respond regularly to requests from across the military, not just army. So yeah, it could get busy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sounds like it. Go ahead, after, a, after a day of conducting funerals and, and uh, being there for families, in that moment of grief, do you find that draining at the end of the day? So most days, actually, when I leave, my 20, 30 minute drive home is uh, kind of my uh, decompression. And on days that I conduct funerals, I'll tell you that I'm in awe. I'm, I'm, you know, I'll just give you an example. I'm going to go off script for a moment, but I got to bury, I'm just using this as an example, uh, a hero, a gentleman that in World War II got to Silver Stars. And um, he, in my opinion, should have been nominated for the Medal of Honor. But um, he was a humble person. 
uh, on the one hand. On the other hand, I got to bury a private first class that retired from the army after World War II or the Korean War. And uh, he was the inventor of the whiteboard. Oh, wow. And here, and here, I get to to you know do the final prayers for him. You know to recite the Kaddish, to to uh, the memorial prayers. You know to to honor him. Um, I got to bury people. You know the uh, there was a woman from um, try to remember the name of the college, but she was a champion, the first female dean of a of a major university. You know she was a trailblazer to get women into these uh, high uh, academic jobs, and, and here I'm getting to honor her. You know, so I'm just using this as an example. I'm in awe more than I'm than I feel drained. Are there days that I feel drained? Yes, but we have ways to handle that through talking with mentors, talking with peers, and having support from people that are uh, that are around us. Yeah, I think it's such a beautiful sentiment in your approach. Because it is so true that no matter how many you may see within an hour, within a day, within the year, for those families, that's the one. And to be at Arlington um, and to, like you said, being late, having, you know, in the final moments of these heroes, time on earth, and to be laying them to rest, um, yeah, it's such a, it's such a good reminder, I think, just for us too that like these moments in time matter and that people's stories matter um and that the legacy that they leave uh is something that needs to be honored whether you know we're standing in line at a grocery store we're barking at each other in traffic or we're laying someone to in their final rest and so i i, I really appreciate you sharing um, sort of a day in the life of uh, Rabbi Stern with us. Um, sh shifting gears a little bit, and I think you alluded to this, and I know it's multifaceted, to the, so to say, like, hey, this one thing is is what chaplains do, but I guess sort of in your you know world according to Rabbi Stern, like, what do you? How do you feel about the role of the chaplain corps? So let's understand. Uh, kind of foundational. The Chaplain Corps' primary mission is to provide religious services and support and to advise the command on religion, morals, ethics, and morale. And the Chaplain Corps motto is nurture the living, care for the wounded, and honor the fallen. So tying it all together, uh, Title II code mandates us to provide religious services and uh, Army regulations add, obviously, the advising the command on matters, as mentioned, religion, morals, and so on. So this is, for me, and, you know, kind of the world according to, <laughs> to Stern, um, is that our role as chaplains is to embody this and live this, uh, our responsibility to ensure the freedom of religion for every soldier so or every service member. To ensure that this, a service member that wants to practice is able to practice, and a service member that doesn't want to practice is not forced to practice. The freedom of religion is a is not just to make sure that that you know a Jew is able to to practice Judaism, but also to ensure that when I have a non-Jewish uh, service member that they get to do what they need to do, whether it's a uh, uh, practice another religion or have no religion at all. 
And so, um, when when then do you feel like um, some of the aspects of being a chaplain in the military? So you're sort of in a many in many ways you're wearing multiple hats, right? And so you've got your um, commitment to your faith group, you've got your commitment to your unit, you've got your commitment to the service. Where do those naturally intersect and where do you see sometimes that there's some tension? So chaplains are are with the troops. This is kind of the, a little bit of a difference between the Army, Air Force, and the Navy. So in the Army, the chaplains are where the troops are. So we are assigned to battalions and higher. So if the, we go with our battalions wherever our troops are. So if they are in a field exercise, we are in the field. You know, we're with them in the field exercise. If they deploy, we deploy. Uh, we build a connection and trust through our, you know, with our troops through shared trials and experiences. So that said, uh, uh, Chaplains in general must balance the, com the, the community's religious needs and the unit's mission uh, and strike a balance between the two. Uh, just as a side note, our orders actually dictate that. So what, our orders assign us to a unit, but they have a line that we support the garrison religious support, uh, the religious office. So uh, our responsibilities dual had it from the beginning. And uh, for me specifically, as there are only 13 uh, of us Jewish chaplains in, on active duty in the army, uh, there's usually only one Jewish chaplain on any given base. And this requires the, the rabbi to ensure the continuity of religious services, even when uh, we participate with, uh, with our unit in drills and exercises. So one such story, and I just want to share a, a quick story about yeah, it. Uh, in 2015, uh, coming up to the holiday of Purim, the festival that, of celebrating the, uh, the story of Esther and the saving of the Jews in the, in, uh, from, uh, from annihilation in the time of uh, the Persian king, um, my unit, my battalion was uh, scheduled to conduct a two-week live fire exercise. And uh, I had to coordinate to return to the garrison for 24 hours to conduct the holiday services and then return right to the field for the duration of the exercise. And I must share, there was, it was in the middle of a blizzard and it's a, you know, and so on. It's all the, all the moving parts. And we still had to coordinate to ensure that the services happened both in the garrison and uh, uh, within the unit. Yeah. And so, where were you at, where were you at the time? Where were you assigned? I was assigned to uh, the military police battalion in uh, Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. Yeah, so you're you're very used to being busy. That is what you're saying. <laughs> uh, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I guess um, to shift then into maybe a more theological discussion, um, we see you, you've given us a good example of where the practice of chaplaincy, um, how it uh, what it looks like, but how about theologically, where you're you're having to now also balance the theology of your faith group and then sort of the ethos of the military, and especially like you were talking about, you're in a uh, military police unit uh, conducting live fire exercises, not because it's fun to go out and shoot guns, because you're preparing for real world situations. So, are there 
is it a nice and neat marriage or are there sometimes some challenges uh, in that relationship? So be, before, I, before I answer that question directly, I just want to add one little thing and this will kind of build a picture. So chaplains serve as a, as a whole, chaplains as a whole serve as a lighthouse in a stormy sea. So in the middle of the chaos and, and, and the, the craziness that's happening, you know, the rush uh, exercises and deployments and so on, chaplains serve as a lighthouse to help troops navigate the rough waters. And one day it might mean that we are counseling a young couple on marriage, you know, relationships, and the next hour it may mean providing grief counseling to someone else. Hmm. So as the spiritual advisor, as someone who is there with the troops, and this could be, you know, any myriad of, of issues where the service is either um, explicitly tasking um, or is um, there is a uh, sort of an implicit um, add on with any of the, you know, I mean, I guess to, to, to highlight a sort of obvious one, like, for example, violence. Um, and as your troopers are wrestling with and, and coming to um, terms with the ferocity of the violence that they're called to bring upon, where, do you, like, what is, where does the chaplain fit into that understanding that many of the faith groups with, that provide chaplain services also have a uh, doctrinal or a theological um, apprehension towards the sort of the use of violence and, and um, the consequences uh, spiritually and, and morally to the uh, to the to the use of violence. So the Torah instructs us how to serve in a, in an army, and that uh, national service is a foundational rite of passage to adulthood. This service helps shape the attitudes of caring for one another and of being selfless. Service to community service or national service uh, teaches young adults to think beyond themselves and focus on the greater good, appreciating the delicate freedom we have. Uh, as we know, unfortunately, in America, less than one percent of the population serves in the in the in the armed forces. Exactly. So, uh, on another note, most wars historically have been about religious theology and practices, <laughs> and uh, we cannot separate uh, what we believe in from what we practice. Therefore, we must adhere to the ethics. We must maintain, you know, keep it the ethics and morals of our theology when we serve in the military. And when a soldier, an officer keeps and lives by the ethics and morals, they're connecting their theology with practice, they impact positively the lives of others. Um, to answer your question about there, are there conflicts or rough patches within it? So in a number of cases, uh, basic Jewish religious requests, and I'm just uh, going to talk about Judaism in this case. Now, I'm not going to, uh, sure. you know, talk about other religions, but uh, it is it is true also for some other religions that religious requests can be difficult in a military setting to facilitate, and many times the soldiers need to become experts <laughs> in their <laughs> religious requests 
just to be able to, to exercise a simple practice. So think of, of it as a, a civilian, uh, you know, wishing to practice something, you know, any kind of uh, uh, religious rite or holiday or, you know, dress and so on. And in the, within a military setting, it, it's a, they need to request permission to do that. So I see it as, you know, to answer the conflict question, I see it as uh, squandered opportunities for the military where we, the military may, may lose good troops because of the difficulty in facilitating religious practice, worship, as the troops believe. And it also creates animosity within units as the troops see how the command reacts to a request. So uh, they see it and translate it to other aspects in their lives. On the other hand, when we see leaders that are receptive and supporting their troops and genuinely caring, and they open the, so through that genuine caring, they open the door for their soldiers to approach them with any issue and they avoid significant issues and challenges later on. And and this is something that strikes home for you directly. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I, <laughs> I experienced it firsthand. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and in multiple ways. I mean, as the chaplain of a unit, you are the key advisor to the commander. I mean, there's only two people that can advise the commander on the welfare of his unit. And that's you and the sergeant major, right? Those, I mean, those are the two key advisors. And uh, absolutely. And uh, allow me to, uh, to actually uh, speak for a moment on the various cultures that we have within the military. Yes, please. And, and the approach we currently have. And I, I, I want to point out, this is what makes good officers, you know, it separates between the good officers and the, you know, and the average or, or not so good officers. Um, is how they they approach in general the and the culture that they create within the unit. So, and we should celebrate contributions regardless of who contributes. So, we should celebrate our civil rights and diversity by celebrating the unique opportunity we have with each person and their contribution to the team. So, every soldier raised their right hand to volunteer their service to our country. Period. We should not focus on race. We should not focus on their religion. We should not focus on their minority or, or not, gender or whatever preferences. We should focus on their actions and the content of their character. We should focus on providing the same leadership and support to individuals based on their behavior, their actions, their character. The same goes for religious accommodation. Leaders should default to approve a religious request. And we will discuss soon the, the, the caveat to that, you know, regarding military necessity. But there's no reason that soldiers and their leaders need to fight about it. There's a common ground that could be found. So finally, as a chaplain, my, I provide counsel and support to every soldier that asks. And in addition, I perform the religious services and activities, providing for others what they need from, for, from me. So for instance, um, if a Christian soldier asks me to officiate their wedding, I refer them, part of my job of advising, I refer them to a Christian chaplain as, because marriage is a religious function. Mm-hmm. But, right. mar- but marriage counseling, on the other hand, relationship counseling and so on, is something that I provide directly to them, regardless of their faith. 
that makes sense. Yeah. So you're not just saying no. Like you said, your default setting isn't to say no. Like if you're not Jewish, that the answer is no. Is that you're faulting to a, a position of yes up until a point, and then I will, once I've exceeded the boundaries of my faith group, I will then refer you over to someone that can sort of take the baton and carry you guys to the next level. Is that, is that sort of how it goes? So if I could give it an analogy is I'm like a, uh, an EMT. <laughs> I'm not a surgeon. So I, my job is when it comes to counseling or, or so on is I provide the, the first aid. And then I help the soldiers and I pass them on to someone you know, whether it's behavioral health, a family life counselor, you know, whatever more, you know, deeper uh, counseling that they need. When it comes to religious practice, I provide them now the surgeon level, the religious needs that they need. However, when it comes to other faiths, I am, you know, a heart surgeon is not going to go do ankle surgery. <laughs> They'll refer it to an to a orthopedic surgeon. An orthopedic surgeon is not going to do a heart surgery. So a Jewish chaplain does Jewish services, and a Christian chaplain does Christian services. And even though uh, historically we could see, I shouldn't say historically, correction, uh, Hollywood teaches us that, uh, you know, whether it's MASH or some of the other uh, military series show that a chaplain wears multiple hats and does services for other faiths, that is actually incorrect yeah. by doctrine. And uh, the chaplains uh, focus only, uh, religious services only on the faiths that we do, that we, that we are. And we refer out and advise the soldiers on getting um, services from other faiths if they if they are practicing other faiths. So um, I guess then to go back a little bit and to talk about some of your firsthand experiences with the sort of default setting, the need, the desire to find compromise uh, and to and to to celebrate the diversity that makes that really is sort of the backbone of the of our military services and the people that join. Could you talk a little bit about some of uh, your experiences firsthand and sort of coming into the service with some some challenges and some apprehension and then sort of navigating that reluctance for people to um, necessarily accept the diversity uh, of uh, its members. So allow me to jump back for a moment and talk about the four chaplains and their inspiration. Um, Chaplain Washington, Good, Fox, and Poling, those chaplains. In their actions, they exemplified the resolve and care that a chaplain should have for their troops by giving up their life to save others. In their final heroic act, they, these four chaplains sacrifice their own lives to save others. And that style, that motto, that leadership inspires me to care for my troops and help those who reach out to me. One of the many times that it, this happened, and I'll share with you a story, when a uh, rabbi reached out to me, telling me that one of a, his congregants, their child, a soldier serving in the military, posted a suicidal Facebook message. The family feared for the soldier's life. I immediately researched where the soldier was stationed and made the effort to contact the soldier or the unit chaplain, but I wasn't able to. So I looked up the name of the command chaplain and reached out directly to the 06 chaplain, to the colonel, 
with the situation at hand. And that chaplain immediately handled the situation and even replied back to my chain of command to thank me for intervening. The Torah equates saving a life to saving an entire world. And, that, and with that, I would do anything to save a life. And I strive to care for the well-being of my troops above my own needs. So to answer your question, first-hand experiences, good or bad, priority is taking care of the troops. So is there a bad day? Kind of. <laughs> There's always light at the end of the tunnel and, a, and the opportunity for the sun to rise again. Uh, that's beautiful. That's awesome. But um, on a personal level, though, you, you, you gained some national attention um, in your fight for religious expression. Um, for those, obviously, this being a podcast, not a, a video series, um, our listeners may not be aware um, you have a beard. Um, can you talk a little bit about the significance of of your uh, uniform standards and some of the 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 ultimate, I guess, the ultimate victory that you had um, in now being a service member, being in, in the chaplain corps, um, being allowed to express your religion the way that you have, and then also what that means now. Like, what are some of the what is the significance overall um, to your service beyond just uh, fulfilling the calling that you heard so many years ago? So some of the foundational basis for the belief is that the Torah states that one should not cut the corner of their head nor mutilate the beard. And um, while, so, while there are some who wish to interpret the meaning into various leniencies and ways around it, the text is clear as daylight. And I was shocked when the army wanted me to shave my beard when I volunteered to, to join the army, just so that I could request a shaving profile once I completed basic training. That doesn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> so for starters, I was not the first to ask for a beard in uniform. I was the first to request to keep my beard when entering the army. This is a, I never shaved my beard in my life. This is the original beard from when it started growing when I was a teenager. Never shaved it, never trimmed it, and so on. So the beard ban on its foundation, and I'm quoting from the, my case when it, uh, when it was handled, uh, when we were working with the military to figure out how I could enter the military, my case stated that the beard ban on its own merit contradicts the law. On the one hand, soldiers come in all shapes and sizes. The army allows shaving exemptions for medical reasons and mission and submission, special operations, op, uh, 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 you know, op four in the training mm -hmm. exercises, sure. etc. The argument of uniformity, which was the main argument that they tried to, ar to, to argue, is moot because they're already giving exceptions for other things, which are, by the way, not constitutionally uh, guaranteed. Uh, you right. know, special operations does not have a First Amendment right, and neither does medical uh, exemptions. And the second argument that they had was regarding the gas masks. So number one is we have shown repeatedly that there are gas masks that, that seal with beards. And when I was nine years old during the first Gulf War, I lived in Israel and gas, everyone had gas masks. And my father and my uncle never shaved and their gas masks sealed. 
just cut your landing. This is real world. We're not talking about training exercise. Right. And uh, gas mask uh, sealed just fine. Uh, when I went through the the uh, CS chamber, the gas chamber in uh, training, and and uh, later on in Fort Leonard Wood and in Fort Hood and so on, my mask sealed just fine and uh, so on. So that's that's number one. Now number two is the the United States law you know, the acronym for it is RIFRA, actually states and mandates that the government must accommodate religious requests in the least restrictive means. And the standard set under that law is, would mean that the government can place those with beards in assignments that do not require masks, A, or if there's a will, they could accommodate beards for religious requests without burdening the government. In other words, the religious request, whether it's a beard or something else, can be accommodated in the least restrictive way. There's other ways to figure it out. Um, they they do not need to um, they did not need to take the most restrictive way, which is ultimately the when it was time for me to enter the army. Ultimately, the army allowed me to enter with a beard, and I've been serving now for well over ten years, and have uh, six uh, have six worldwide missions three of them were uh, combat deployments did just fine <laughs> yeah 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 clearly um but you know this this while you were so you mentioned a little bit of the dod adjusting its policy that's no small feat <laughs> as as you are well aware and and for those uh veterans who are listening know that not often uh, does the DOD acquiesce these sorts of things? So, um, do you find like is that a positive thing, or were you just the squeaky wheel that that got the grease? So, I think it was inevitable. Uh, it just happened to be that I was uh, the lucky person in the front of it, but uh, I think it was inevitable because uh the as as mentioned before the the ban itself had no legal standing um and i must point out while some of my leaders supported me you know whether it was during the process of entering the military or even after i entered the military i did face some resistance from others and not just for for the beard i've you know unfortunately i've uh, i've seen uh, you know anti-semitism i've uh, i've seen discrimination, I've seen, you know, and so on. I've seen toxic leaders. So as a, as a whole, though, uh, once leaders take the time to learn and understand the other side, my experience has been that the good leaders change their tune. They change their attitude. They become more accommodating to once they understand what, you know, the reasoning and so on. And, and ultimately, as mentioned before, the character of the person versus their look or their gender or their religious belief yeah absolutely and so you found you you found some support then through the chaplain corps not just from within the the military apparatus itself uh yes <laughs> found support uh from the chaplain corps found support from uh from leadership i you know i i'll just use a quick story when i first arrived at fort leonard wood it's a basic training post um uh, there were drill sergeants that uh, raised eyebrows. They want to know how come I had a beard. Uh, how come I had a beard? And um, once my soldier, 
let's i don't know if we could include it officially in the podcast but uh, one of my soldier was called and uh, my uh village affairs specialist was called in by a drill sergeant from another unit to demand that i you know the drill sergeant told him to make sure that his uh, officer that his chaplain is clean shaven and my soldier did not know what to respond so he came to me and asked me what sh- what he should do so my initial reaction was hey here's my waiver you know here's my accommodation for my beard and go show it to him uh my sergeant my battalion sergeant major heard it and he said chaplain no your accommodation is yours your chain of command are the only ones that could you know basically force you to show it or whatever anyone else on the outside you refer them to talk to me and he turns to my soldier and he sends a soldier to that drill sergeant and uh tells he tells a he tells my soldier he says you go tell the drill sergeant that he and his sergeant major should come see me <laughs> and that was the last time that anyone really bothered me about the beard in Fort Leonard Wood and I was stationed there for 3 years so just using it as an example I don't I, I don't know if it's fitting, fitting for the podcast and for the theme but oh. it's kind of a to understand the background that's that's our wheelhouse so yeah you yeah. nailed okay. it <laughs> um so then well then this obviously uh has ripple effects outside of just Rabbi Stern and even within the army. I mean, now we're talking about many, many faith groups who may have felt like they weren't going to be able to find a role or be able to serve are now able to. Are you seeing some of that, that that there's a positive uh, trend moving forward? So I do see an opportunity where historically great warriors and i'm just going to use the example of the sikhs yeah uh, as right. an as an example there are historically amazing warriors with fascinating history where until now a religious sikh would have a barrier to entry in the military now they have a means and a way to enter uh the military is able to recruit and has recruited rabbis uh into the military we uh, right since i came in uh we brought in seven eight uh rabbis with beards to serve in the military in the navy the air force in the national guard uh active duty army so it opens a door for good people to serve without needing to compromise their religious belief and allow me to talk for a moment please about about this representation uh uh with uh, you know that the chapel core facilitates but it's you know military wide uh diversity and pluralism in the it have different meanings pluralism is changing the many to become one you know uh the kind of the theme of the united states for many one but at the same time diversity is a quality of being diverse while remaining true to our individual identity This is a definition of the uh, of the of the dictionary. Now, the individual should not lose their unique identity in order to contribute to the group. Diversity is accomplished when we accept everyone for who they are and they contribute and want to contribute to the to the mission, not forcing them to change or comport to become puppets. We don't we're not recruiting robots. we're recruiting people for who they are so the chapel core facilitates this 
by advising the command whenever needed of the individual's importance and their contribution and the effect of the mission on religion, morals, ethics, morale. And a good chaplain is one that is not afraid to speak up when they see a bias or mistreatment. And every chaplain should strive to do what is right morally and ethically, even in the face of criticism. And one example to leadership to uh, one example is a leadership program that uh, uh, I collaborated uh, while assigned to uh, a military intelligence battalion, uh, where the platoon and company leadership learned about caring for their troops beyond statistics. So we created a care council, and that care council was an opportunity for leaders to proactively engage their soldiers and know what they're going through to, antici to anticipate their needs. This care council reduced overall issues and challenges within our formation. And we went from reacting to emergencies and uh, ideations and legal problems and so on to proactively providing the resources that our troops needed to handle the stresses and reduce destructive behaviors. This care council model, which was embraced and promoted by uh, our brigade command sergeant major, enabled leaders at the lowest level to interact with their soldiers personally and to reduce a mon monotonous bureaucracy that is common with counseling or, or paperwork. Mm -hmm. We were able to brief our leaders up on what mattered and keep an eye out on those who needed assistance. That's awesome. That's really great. And, and so I, I think in, you know, a lot of ways, the things that you're talking about, I mean, they, they resonate, uh, especially within the Marine Corps, because both the commandant and the assistant commandant both spoke about diversity, not as a sort of um, political talking point, you know, that's just um, inundated with statistics and data, but they're talking about thinking and the advantage that we have over our you know, threat competitor, our peer competitors, our threat comp competitors is, is that we're not this sort of monolithic, you know, uh, homogeneous organization that only has like one way of thinking, one doctrine that everyone adheres to, and um, that everyone thinks the same, acts the same, speaks the same, that we take our collective experiences and we celebrate those because it's looking at the problem set from the various angles is what's going to give us that edge over our competitor. And so I think a lot of what you're saying, and I'd love to hear that, that you feel like the chaplain corps is an enabler of this um, so that, because to be quite honest with you, you know, having been a battalion executive officer and having been a company commander, you do get so focused on mission, mission, mission that you lose sight of the fact that, well, the mission can only really be accomplished if you're using every asset and every tool at your at your disposal and maximizing its its um, you know its output. And so I think I'd love to hear that the chaplain corps and the chaplain as a key advisor is someone that facilitates that. Absolutely. And, and the opportunity, uh, and I've been to quite a few different, different types of battalions, you know, from engineers to military police to intelligence and so on. And I saw the different command styles 
for lack of another way of putting it, you know, the command climates. Right. And and the good ones took the time, whether it was at a company level, platoon level, or at battalion or squadron level, uh, where they took the time to sit and discuss the troops' needs, not just the mission. Um, uh, I, I, I won't forget this, and I know I'm... We'll take out this particular sentence. I'm going a little bit off script, but um, I remember one unit where the company commander said, "Why are we leaving to this? Uh, you know, we were going for to do table eights, which is a type of a fire exercise, and um, we were the company commander said, "Why are we leaving on a Saturday morning? We could leave on Monday morning. We just leave five o'clock in the morning on Monday, and we'll set up the tents and call today. Why do we need to leave on a Saturday?" When the, you know, it's a day off, let the troops be home and be with their families. Right. It's, you know, that little difference, you know, why do we need to, every time that there's a readiness exercise, why do we need to do it at three in the morning? That particular company commander said, exercise is that the ball could drop at any moment. Fine. The ball could drop at three in the afternoon too. The exercise doesn't have to be, always be at three in the morning or, or, or at a Saturday morning. It could be at any time. So uh, uh, really, that made a big difference, and the the we saw it with the attitude of the troops. The troops wanted to 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 excel when they were treated properly. So this particular what I'm sharing with you, I, I don't know if you've been included or not, but this is just my experience. No, that's I, I love I love the anecdotes. I mean, to be quite honest with you, it really is what what's giving, um, you know sort of your witness that's giving it some real teeth. And so, cause it's not just a matter of like, well, here's what doctrine says, or here's what theology says. It's like, no, this is a lived experience. Right. Um, and I think that that's extremely valuable. You know, like we talk about on the show all the time is like storytelling. I mean, stories matter and people's experiences matter. And we are, uh, you know, humans are, a, we communicate through story. Um, you know, yeah, sure, you could sit here and give me an after-action report, and that's all well and good, but it doesn't really resonate until uh, we get that that anecdotal sort of experiential, um, you know, lens that you're seeing the world through. And, and we all, one of the other things we found with the podcast is, you know, everyone's got a story to tell, whether they realized or not, and this is a really great venue for people to be able to tell their story. And as Vic often says, to take ownership of their story. So, so we're glad you're sharing your stories with us. Well, looking back then on your career, um, and I know I've, I'd read in some uh, previous interviews of yours that had you known about the chaplain corps when you were 19, that you would have signed up then. But there's a certain, I think, maturity and especially hearing the way that you're speaking um you know you being at the age that you were uh you know on the crest you know cresting 30 um having a ton of experience in uh the civilian sector um in the theological sector do you feel like that time that maturation process was an asset to you, or would you like to still go back and, and sort of siphon that, that youthful energy that you had uh, when you were 19, 20 years old? So this is a double-edged sword. <laughs> 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 because there's no, there's no price tag on experience. Right. Like, the best schools cannot teach experience. You know, experience tests a person's mettle, 
and it builds a resilient mind and attitude. So to answer the question, on the one hand, the youthfulness is, would allow me to uh, run more, uh, uh, to experience the military and service to our country uh, uh, earlier. Uh, but at the same time, there's no price tag on experience. So uh, uh, this is something that, that uh, you know, my opinion, <laughs> hmm. um, military schools teach doctrine. If they were to teach and change their style from a current from the current uh, classroom model to an experience based model, and understand that not every soldier is destined to be a commander or destined to be a general officer or command sergeant major, and the training would be hands on and build on the experience of the individual, teach them the basics and allow for trial and error in a training environment, which is a safe environment, to build the individual to become the best they can be. Learning tactics from a book does not equate to practical tactics. Experiencing the tactics allows a person to build muscle memory. I could read all day about the proper posture for push-ups, <laughs> but it will be meaningless until I do the actual push-up. Yeah. So keeping that in mind, I do want to, you know, allow me to try a moment to talk about the, the uh, you know, per, some personal experience about it. And so when I was 18, um, I failed a particular critical exam, a religious exam, and I felt like a failure. I spent a long time uh, learning it. It was a three-part exam. I passed the first two with flying colors, top of the class. The third part, I failed. And I wanted to give up. And my mentor spoke to me, and he suggested other approaches and solutions. And at, that was the moment that set me on the path, actually, to volunteer of myself as a medic at the time and an ambulance corps and join uh, uh, in the service of a community uh, using the example that uh, you cannot expect a fish to climb a tree. <laughs> Every person has what they're cut out to do, what, they're, what they excel at. So the sages teach us, a person should become wiser and uh, tra literal translations, I become wiser from all of my teachers. And the Baal Shem Tov, who was a sage that lived uh, approximately uh, 400, 500 years ago, expanded on the topic by saying that everything that one sees in life is shown to them to learn from that or to act upon it. So each time I face a challenge or situation that I don't understand, I discuss it with my mentors, I gain clarity and a perspective beyond mine to decide how to move from there. So every obstacle is an opportunity for a miracle to be revealed. To add to that, and talking about mentors and experiences, I was lucky that the rabbinical school that I went to encouraged us based on the sages' teaching of a selah harav, which literally trans translates, make for yourself a mentor, uh, which is a statement in the ethics of our fathers, that our school taught us to reach out and make a mentor for ourselves. And I recommend that the mentor should be someone that understands the unique circumstances that you are facing, someone that you could connect with, someone that uh, would listen carefully and provide you guidance. This opportunity is uh, an opportunity for the individual to both see the, you know, their challenges from another lens and to not only be uh, tunnel vision 
on how to solve their challenge, but rather look at other options. If a door closes, there might be another door right next to you that's open. If you, but if you're not focused on that, you're not open, you know, not uh, opening your vision, you may not see it. Um, in addition to that, I just want to just quickly talk about it, that uh, the Lubavitcher Rebbe points out that we must contribute at each level to accomplish the mission. So you mentioned before about the, about the human aspect and the, human, the aspect of human nature and so on. This also translates to mentorship. A general officer cannot win a war on their own. Mm -hmm. Neither can a private. They must work together. The general at a strategic level cannot forget about the tactical contribution of the private. And the private, while they may not understand the whole picture from a strategic level, they must know that their contribution is vital for the strategic, for the strategic plan. You know, uh, uh, my daughter loves Band of Brothers, and there's one statement over there when General Taylor responds to the German demand of surrender. He says, nuts. <laughs> nuts. You know, what did he do to the private? You know, imagine if the general would f be fighting the war on their own or the private would be fighting the war on their own. You know, that, that dichotomy, that, that connection would be gone. Yeah. That must be tied in together. So the individual alone can impact their immediate, immediate area. But still, when combined with the team's effort and with the guidance of their general officers or their mentors personally, they, their reach now becomes a greater reach and they grow. And in last week's snowstorm, as we saw here in Virginia, we noticed something interesting. Just like a single snowflake is unique and on its own, it would melt and disappear. The, uh, uh, even the strongest blizzard must start with that single snowflake. Mm -hmm. And although each snowflake is, is fragile, their power becomes immense when they stick together. Yep. They could even shut down the I-95 for 72 hours. Yeah, or create a snowman that won't melt on my front lawn. <laughs> <laughs> Point taken. So this is, what, this is what I'm saying about, you know, the ability of the individual is, could be maximized and taken to a, to a level that is greater than ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think that totally ties in with what you were talking about with diversity, that it's not about necessarily pluralism. I know pluralism is a policy that we want to have, but it goes beyond that. And it goes about celebrating those differences and those viewpoints and that thinking that is going to make us a stronger uh, unit and community. Um, and that yeah, you know, the chaplains are a tremendous asset in uh, maximizing that that cohesion. Absolutely. So uh, uh, talking about that is uh, one of the biggest things that we could do is to continue learning and to listen, right? <laughs> yeah, to listen, to listen to our to, to everyone, to um, to listen to to our to the needs. Um, one example, and I'm just going to use this uh, uh, as a catapult to one of the biggest successes that I saw in the military if, is, for example, when I was stationed at Fort Leonard Wood, uh, we advertised Yom Kippur services, the holiest day of the Jewish year. And to our surprise, on the eve of the holiest day of the year, every trainee showed up with a battle buddy to our services. And uh, the battle buddies were not Jewish. The drill sergeants wanted to ensure that the Jewish troops observed the holiday properly. So they instructed a battle buddy to be with them for the duration of the holiday to allow them, to enable them 
to practice their faith. Uh, another area of success that I've seen is that when leaders take the time to learn, they take the time to listen, and they accommodate, even if they don't necessarily understand the intricacy of the request, they try their best. One example from uh, from a movie is in Hacksaw Ridge when uh, Andrew Garfield and his character requests a religious accommodation. And initially, not only is the command not receptive, but they treat him negatively. Right. But then, even though the commander did not understand the intricacies of the request, he figured out a way, a common ground to allow it, to allow the character um, to serve. Uh, I'm saying the character. Historically, it's a true story to allow the soldier, uh, Richard Dawson, to serve in uh, uh, with his faith to continue serving as a medic, even though he wasn't carrying a weapon, or, uh, or in the case to you know observe his Sabbath and so on in a proper way. It is possible to find common ground. That's an amazing story about the the battle buddies uh, among the trainees at Fort Leonard Wood. How how um, how startled were you to see that, or what you know, did that propel you through your through through your fast? That give you, you know, some some extra. Um, I'm not sure what the word is here. Um, how, how did that affect you as you were going into such a a, a solemn and holy day? Inspiration. I uh, even though the battle buddies had an opportunity, they didn't have to sit through the service itself. They came there, but they had opportunities. They wanted to sit on the side, you know, outside of the service, so they're not forced to to worship a different faith of their own. Um, uh, some of them. Did, chose to stay in the room. But what's fascinating about this is uh, there was a gentleman, uh, elderly gentleman, who before the holiday, I was sure that uh, he would, uh, uh, you know, just because of maybe my assumption com combined with his age and so on, I was sure that he would not necessarily observe the fast and so on. But uh, at the conclusion of the fast, he, uh, during the Havdalah service, when we uh, conclude the fast with a ceremonial blessing over a cup of wine, and then we could break the fast, uh, the psalm day. Uh, this gentleman uh, was standing there with his cup, and I noticed that his hand is shaking. So I turned to him and I asked him, did you truly fast the whole day, you know, 24 plus hours? And he tells me, yes. Um, I, when I could see these young soldiers and their battle buddies in the room, and they're fasting and they're praying and they're, you know, uh, 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 truly immersed in the in this psalm day. I, that was born to a Jewish mother, should sit by a knot. That was his words to me at the conclusion of the holiday. And um, wow, this kind of caps the that particular experience to where uh, I was truly inspired. Uh, that holiday uh, really gave me the 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 drive, I should say, to ensure that every holiday. Uh, is regardless of whether it's a major holiday or a minor holiday, is observed an opportunity for the uh, uh, soldiers, the Marines, the sailors, the airmen, whoever wants to attend our services is able to. Beautiful. That is beautiful. Well, Rabbi, thank you so much for your time. Uh, this has been this has been wonderful, and it's a such a great uh, addition uh, to this series. So, thank you so much for taking the time. I really apologize for some of the technical difficulties we had early on, but uh, I'm so glad that we stuck with it because it was totally worth it. 
I do have a question for you, though. Oh, yeah, sure. I'll, uh, I have a response. I don't know if I have an answer. <laughs> what, was, what was your best day in the Marine Corps? Oh, my best day? <laughs> okay. You flipped the script. Jeez. Um, uh, you know, my time as a company commander uh, was just was so amazing. It's hard to pinpoint maybe a single day. Um, but, oh, gosh. I My best day, huh? Um, yeah, I, I, I think got to say when we were in uh, Iraq in 2007, 2008, and I was able to get off. I told my I told my Marines I was going to be the first one in the last one out. And so when I stepped off the plane, last one and everybody came home alive. Um, that was my best, my best day in the Marine Corps. And when we marched from the armory after having dropped off all our weapons, uh, we marched in formation to meet with our families. And I, I brought everybody in like football style, like hands in the middle. And, you know, I just, it was just so, so proud of them because they're the ones who did that. It had nothing to do with me. I was just the guy in the chair, but I was just so proud of them. And, um, you know, because they they did it for one another. I mean, of course, we did it because we wanted to liberate, help liberate Iraq from oppression. But at the end of the day, they did it for each other. I was just so so proud of them. Wow, that's uh, that's fascinating. I thank God that your Marines were able to return home. Yeah, uh, it wasn't for a lack of trying on the other side. I'll tell you what. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, thank you for that question. That's awesome. Sure. I, I feel so uh, I'm so humbled right now. I don't even know what to say. But other than to say thank you again so much for this. It has been a real honor, a real treat. Um, and uh, we again, we'll, we'll definitely look to get you back on the show uh, at some future date if you'll have us. Sure thing. I, I do have a personal story that happened to me. My life was saved in Afghanistan. And um, uh, I believe it was a miracle. So for a future podcast, maybe. Yeah. That's great. I can't wait to hear that story. For all our listeners, stand by for that. That's a that's a wonderful hook. So, God willing, we'll be, yeah. we'll be in touch again. Please. And, yeah, absolutely. And thank you very much, Rabbi. We really, uh, as Vic said, we really appreciate your taking the time to talk with us today and, and share your your insight and your stories and, and your wisdom with us. It's a, It was a treat for us and um, look forward to talking with you again soon. Thank you for the opportunity, and uh, I appreciate it. And uh, although I'm not a Marine, Semper Fi, and uh, go Army, beat Navy. <laughs> oh, oh. Well, the Navy won this year. Maybe next year, you know. Yeah, there'll be another. There'll be another. Another go at it. All right. Well, thank you so much. Have a great. Have a great, have a great week, everyone. Thanks so much. Thank you all. Bye bye. Thanks. Bye. Scuttlebutt is a production of the Marine Corps Association. I am Nick Wilson. That is Major Vic Rubel, U.S. Marine Corps retired. You have also heard the voices of or contributions from William Truding or Nancy Lichman, editors of Gazette and Mother Neck magazines, respectively. 
Opinions expressed in Scott of Letter are just that, opinions, and do not represent any official stance of the MCA.